Welcome to 39-Minute Conversations. Please wait for your host to begin this meeting. Your meeting is now being recorded. All right. Are you there? Can you see me? Can you hear me? It's telling me things. Okay, there we go. Hi. Hey, David. How's it going? Good I'm good. You. Good to see you. Thank you for doing this. Of course, of course. How are you feeling? Um, I'm feeling all right. I'm feeling a little sore, a little tired, but you know, a little sunburnt, but we're all doing what we can do. How are you feeling? I'm fine. Just, you know, pounding the pavement, (laughs) screaming, (laughs) getting cars to honk. That's that's the best part of it. Yeah. Sometimes my, most of the time, my job is about making my hands sore and sometimes about making my feet sore. So (laughs) <laughs> I can't wait to talk more about this with you, but the first thing I do have to do is get through a quick ad read. I hope that's okay. Yeah, I'm going to make you sit through think. that. Apologize. This week's episode of 39 Minute Conversations is not technically presented by Union Solidarity. These are existentially strange times. It is scary. It is uncertain, but it's also hopeful. It's been great being out in the picket line, standing together with other writers, fighting for the future of our industry, trying to make writing a viable career again. But writers aren't the only ones who are facing a crisis point. That is why this ad is for the members of SAG-AFTRA. If you're a member of SAG-AFTRA, you have now received a strike authorization vote, and I encourage you to vote yes. I am not a member of SAG. I'm SAG eligible, but not really an actor. We don't have to get into that. But I have a lot of friends who are or are striving to be, and I know actors are dealing with a lot of the same bullshit that writers are. Streamers taking advantage of low new media rates, residuals, pennies on the dollar compared to broadcast and cable rates, studios trying to claim your likeness and voice rights, and what we have in front of us is a rare opportunity to change the way the entertainment industry operates for the better for everyone. In 1960, there was a joint strike, both writers and actors. This union solidarity won residuals for movies aired on TV, plus pensions and health plans, which are still huge to this day. We still rely on those now. And we can do it again. A joint strike is the way to keep our careers from turning into gig work to win protections and better pay for us all. And we can do it by standing together. So SAG-AFTRA, please vote yes on a strike authorization by June 5th. And DGA, if you want to get in on this, we would love to have you. And hello, I'm Brian T. Arnold, and this is 39 Minute Conversations, a podcast where we connect with old friends and making new ones. But I've only got 39 minutes to do it because I will not be paying for Zoom Pro. My guest today is a very accomplished television writer who, for some reason, is slumming it by agreeing to be on this stinky little podcast. He began his career in animation on shows like Jackie Chan Adventures and Teen Titans, moved into live action on Law & Order, and since then, he served as a writer-producer on shows like Lie to Me, In Plain Sight, MacGyver, Person of Interest, and Magnum P.I. He's also the creator of APB on Fox and wrote the series guide for Netflix's Dark Crystal. He's a proud member of both the WGA and TAG, a former member of the WGA West Board of Directors, and he served on the WGA 2020 Negotiating Committee. Please welcome David Slack. Wow, thank you. That is quite the bio, David. It's uh, yeah, it's I, I guess so. I guess I've been at it a while. <laughs> so, it, I, it, I'm in my second strike. So I met somebody the other day uh, who was on his fourth. So wow, I got a ways to go. Yeah, yeah, you got time. You got time. Yeah, we'll we'll yeah, strike yeah. again. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are a rare podcast guest for me in that you are someone that I've actually met in person recently. Yeah. Um, I started the show. <laughs> Uh, because the pandemic kind of turned me into a bit of a shut-in. So that kind of, most of my guests have been people I haven't seen in a long time or that I've met online. But we met on the picket lines, which is 
this is the first time I've been regularly out of my apartment in three years. Uh, so one thing that we were talking about on the picket line is the difference between this strike and the strike back in 2007, that you were on the ground for both. Um, I remember I was like getting a lot of cars to honk. I was feeling really good. And I got like one thumbs down from a car and I was like, hey, wait a second. I got somebody's not happy with us. And you were like, oh, it used to be 2007 was a lot more divisive than this. So I'd love to hear sort of your perspective on the difference between the action we took in 2007 and now and kind of what your yeah, the, the differences you're seeing. The difference is indescribably profound and honestly, just like so heartening. Um, mm -hmm. I think we're in a inflection point we're watching the entire labor movement in hollywood wake back up you know um we've got you know solidarity from sag aftra amazing amazing solidarity from the teamsters and the atsi members who haven't been crossing our picket lines mm -hmm. um the, the support from the teamsters cannot be understated that's uh just uh thank you teamsters i, I don't mm -hmm. know what to say um uh yeah no it's it's um and it's because everybody is getting that uh we win together that's the whole way a union works you win together there are things that you could never negotiate as an individual even a really powerful individual um that you can only negotiate as a group with the power of withholding our labor and the power of not crossing picket lines um in 2007 the labor movement in Hollywood was not in that place that it is now. Um, so we had some pretty profound pushback from uh, across the industry, from you know members of other unions, um, some leadership of other unions, uh, and from just the public at large. So I, I remember walking that picket line, having people, you know, come by screaming "Greedy writers" at mm -hmm. us and stuff like that. We I did location picketing back then. There were you know occasionally. You know, there was always some Teamsters and the Atsy guys and actors who were supportive, but then there were some who were, you know, in some cases ready to fight us. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I I just can't express enough gratitude to the leadership of uh, of our union and of other unions for really communicating that, you know, we're all up against the same thing. We're all facing companies that are making $30 billion a year in profit, not revenue, profit, mm -hmm. who will not give us basic things to let us have a middle-class life, good wages, good working conditions, the hours that uh, Yahtzee crew members were raising in their last negotiation. Mm -hmm. Insane, insane. People die driving home from set because of the hours that they're forced to work. And, you know, as a, as a writer and, you know, showrunner, I don't, I don't want to work those hours. I don't want the crew to have to work those hours, but it's something that's you know, even the most powerful showrunner in Hollywood, I don't think could get the studios to agree to shoot an eight hour day. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it could happen. Um, so, you know, AI is coming for all of us. I talked to a uh, a set decorator who was walking the picket line with us the other day who said, you know, no, we, we're facing the same thing. You know, there, there are shows where the sets are now all virtual, you know, mm -hmm. and the work's mm -hmm. gone to somebody non-union who's doing that, you know, creating a virtual environment. Um, I have an actor friend who uh, does audiobooks primarily, and she has had her voice stolen twice by two separate AI companies mm -hmm. who just took it, trained their AI, and now they're selling her voice. And when SAG after brings a, brings a challenge, they claim a voice isn't copyrightable, which is a little bit like stealing somebody's liver and saying that's not copyrightable. 
Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I mean, directors, I, I don't, you know, uh, there are very well-developed algorithms in video games that tell you right where to put the camera. And I can envision a future where you have a, a first AD consulting a program that says, okay, next setup's over here. Um, and all of that stuff, I think, if they were to succeed with it, we would be poorer for it. Uh, the quality of the product would be worse for it. We'd be certainly more tired. So we're we're very much, you know, there are differences between the unions. There are differences in exactly what our issues is. Are, but we've all been ground down to the minimum that and below the minimum that we can possibly survive on, the minimum that the contract allows. Um, and that minimum isn't enough. So we've got to, you know, raise our minimums across the board for every union in this town. And the thing David Young, who's the executive director of the Writers Guild, the thing he always says is, what is your power merit and can the other side afford it? Our power certainly merits it and the other side can sure as hell afford it. So, you know, it's uh, but yeah, it's it's really, really different in 2000, 2023, my God, than it was in 2007. <laughs> um, and not, ju not just because I was a younger man and the hours on the picket line were a little bit easier. <laughs> um, yeah, I, in 2007, I was in college and I wasn't, you know, as aware of everything that's yeah. going on. How much one thing that I think you're very good at that I've noticed is effectively communicating this not only just now which was you know you laid out everything that I think we're dealing with but also on social media and on Twitter you're very good about just kind of breaking everything down how much do you think maybe social media helps us in terms of you know getting our messaging out and is that part of why you think that it is a little bit more successful this time at least in terms of solidarity absolutely absolutely I mean uh you know, make no mistake, social media is a garbage fire. Oh, absolutely. You know, like <laughs> I, I'm not on Facebook. I only use Twitter now to say good things about the guild and bad things about Elon Musk. I'm uh, <laughs> unspoutable for random funny stuff. Um, but uh, in 2007, um, those things were in their infancy. There was I, there, there were some people on Facebook, mm -hmm. but it was a small subset, recent college graduates and stuff right. like that. Twitter was not really, you know, it was in its infancy. Yeah, I was on Facebook, but I think it was just like, ate a sandwich today. You know, yeah, it was, exactly. it was, yeah. those, so like, it was, it was back tips. when you would just add your status after your name, like it completed a sentence. Exactly. You know? um, yeah, but um, so really the only way that people had to, correct misinformation and the studios were pumping out a ton of it, you know, because mm -hmm. the studios, it, 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 you know, the trades are beholden to the studios. The studios are the ones who buy all the ads and that's how the trades make their money. So, you know, some of, you know, some of the work done by the trades as journalism has been, in my opinion, little better than just taking something off of a fax machine and copy and pasting it right up onto the website. Yeah. Um, that's changed now because they're getting fact checked in social media by, you know, by the guild and by the guild's members. And that's really, really, you know, in, in 2007, it was really just Nikki Fink who mm -hmm. was, you know, actually doing reportage and looking into things and getting the facts uh, as opposed to just putting out the studio propaganda. So we had a much harder time getting our members educated that like, look, here's where the trade's interests lie. This is how they're going to you know, this is the information they're going to put out. This is the information they're probably not going to put out. And our mm -hmm. captain system at the WGA was in its infancy. It, 
Mm -hmm. We didn't, to my memory, really have a captain system. We started having strike captains, and that was the genesis, at least. Yeah, I may be wrong about that, but I believe that that was the first time I ever heard about it. Okay. So we've built that as a way to communicate with our members. We've done a really good job over the years of strengthening that system so that we have a way to communicate directly with our members and cut through all that. But now our members also are, I think, pretty well inoculated against the the grip of studio propaganda. They'll put, you know, they'll try and put something out in the first week they tried it with, you know, putting out a headline that writers are fine with AI writing scripts as long as a writer gets paid, which was right. a gross mixed characterization of anything that we were proposing. And the guild itself promptly spiked it. And we, you know, talked to the LA Times and got our actual policy out, which is incredibly reasonable, mm-hmm. which is just like, hey, don't use this to do shit and then pay us far less to fix it because it can't fucking do it. Right. Um, I hope it's okay to swear because it's absolutely gonna... please do. Um uh but so yeah it's um yeah <laughs> we have a lot lot better uh and I've just been really pretty blown away at how poor the studio's messaging has been you know Mm -hmm. but i guess when you're sitting on all the money you don't really have to care what people think of you um so yeah it has been that has struck me as well is kind of almost it feels like they're holding this indefensible position but they won't budge off of it even if you look at what happened at the upfronts was it yesterday or the day before where they were you know, the upfronts were obviously uh, picketed. And then, you know, even like the people who were presenting were like, well, this isn't how we wanted it to go. So at what point do you think, uh, predictions are dangerous and tough, but at what point do you think the AMPTP might think about coming back to the bargaining table? Because we're, you know, I mean, our resolve I'm, hasn't changed at this point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I'll, I'll take that question a level deeper, which is a question that I've, I've heard a lot of people. Please, you know, I, I encourage you to make any question I ask you. No, no, that. no, just that, <laughs> you know, the, the question that a lot of writers are asking themselves is how long is this gonna last? Sure. And I will tell all of us, there is only one correct answer to that, as long as it fucking takes, mm-hmm. as long as it takes, you know, that because we are fighting to save a way of life, to save a career, to save our ability to use the incredibly creative product that we come up with that the studios don't know know how to make you know you'd never Mm -hmm. have an auto executive who couldn't tell what was a car and what wasn't what (laughs) wasn't you know but there are people these ceos probably can't tell the difference between a great story and one that's garbage Mm -hmm. Uh, they need us but so yeah it's um oh dear (laughs) it's a lot (laughs) um it's a lot but also i'm a little heartened by you know, obviously it's early stages yet, but the 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 solidarity that we've seen with other unions, especially yeah. and and SAG having their um their strike authorization vote, potentially the, the DGA in negotiations right now, it does feel like a rare opportunity to sort of all come together and try to improve things. Yeah. Um, and it, and, it, and it, it, to get back to your question, sorry, I jumped it over. No, please. To circle back to the thing, I, I, I really don't know how long mm-hmm. it's going to take. I mean, look, I think if the people at the studios are smart, and I do think they are smart, um, I think they are already realizing that they've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, The real question is, how long will it take them to admit it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, from my understanding of this stuff, and I understand it pretty well, uh, there's only one reason to send a union out on strike, and that's you think you can break the union. 
Mm -hmm. uh, save yourself on labor costs. You know, in 2007, we had a 90% strike authorization. We hadn't struck in 19 years. Made sense maybe to force us out on strike and see if they could break the union and save themselves a lot of money and hassle. Um, now you've got the group that held together through the agency campaign, um, mm -hmm. changed the way business is done, ended the packaging fee deal process, signed two hedge funds to union agreements. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got a 98% or 97.85% strike authorization vote with record turnout. Mm -hmm. Even a cursory risk analysis would tell you that's not a union you can break. So um, I think what we're dealing with here is ego and a need to exert power and control. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could take a while because these are people with big egos and to whom power is incredibly important. But at the end of the day, they don't have the power to make the product that makes them rich. We have that power mm -hmm. and we're withholding it. So, um, and similarly SAG-AFTRA to circle to that question. And my, my wife's a member of SAG-AFTRA. I'm just blown away and thrilled that they're taking a strike authorization vote. Like even just taking that step, I think is a fundamentally powerful thing. Because SAG, SAG-AFTRA is an incredibly powerful union, mm -hmm. incredibly powerful. I mean, writers because of our lead time, we got to be out four to six weeks before anybody really notices we stopped coming in. Mm -hmm. SAC after goes out, Teamsters go out, directors go out, Yahtzee goes out, things shut down day one. Mm -hmm. You know, like we're going around doing location pickets, you know, with, with getting people to not cross our picket lines. The actors decided to use the enormous power that they have. Um, they would be in a fantastic position and I firmly believe they'd get a much better deal. Um, so I'm really, you know, uh, my wife voted yes immediately and, you know, posted about it on social media. Uh, I very much encourage every sag after member to uh, find that ballot, get out of arrears if you need to. Mm -hmm. It's really, really important. And if they have a strong vote and a good turnout, um, they're going to be much, much better positioned. And I, and I think they had to take the vote because the AMPTP was only giving them three weeks to negotiate, which isn't very much time. Yeah. I think the Writers Guild of America had been, we got more time than that. If we had been in a similar situation, we might've done the same thing of going ahead and take our taking our strike authorization vote. So mm -hmm. uh, I think their strategy is very smart and I'm just grateful to them for the solidarity. I've seen so many um, SAG-AFTRA members on the picket lines uh, and um, whatever uh, whatever comes next for them, um, we will have their backs. Absolutely. And I know you probably can't get into too many details on this, but you have been in the negotiating rooms. Um, on the negotiating well, I was in committee. the negotiating Zoom because <laughs> it was we were during covid everything was shut down it was terrifying so i i, I haven't i haven't seen the full because there are little sidebar conversations and apparently eric haywood tweeted about how you can steal snacks which was really frustrated that i didn't get to do that because i, I do i do love to steal things sure uh, but uh but yeah so but i yeah i've done the negotiating zoom in 2020 which was just surreal was, yeah, what's that like being on the front line of the negotiation? Obviously, you can't probably can't get into too many details on it, but just the general sense of it, the feeling of it, the day to day, I guess, a little bit. No, I mean, the, the thing I would say about it is that it's a it's an incredibly formalized and incredibly civilized process. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember stuff in the trades about, you know, David Young screaming and things like that. Like I look, that may have happened. I wasn't in that room, but I worked sure. with David for four years and that's not the guy I know. I know he's very tall and that can be intimidating to some people. 
Um, but you know, it, it is an incredibly formalized process. Nothing is said out, out of turn or out of plan. Like there was, there was one thing in 2017, I think I told you about this on the picket line where they were giving a presentation because it's the two sides sort of give, it's not like a, okay, what if we do this? What if we do that? It's like, mm -hmm. you know, we put out our proposals and they will go through and respond to some of our proposals or just ignore them, which yeah. is what we did with a lot of them this time. Yeah. And their responses will be formalized, you know, and we will give presentations to each other about this is how we see the situation. Here's the data supporting that. Here are the arguments supporting that. In one of the AMPTP's presentations in 2017, and this I wasn't there for this, this is just secondhand, mm -hmm. but they uh they actually put up a piece of clip art. They were arguing that they didn't have the money to pay us. Now, you know, th that old saw that the AMPTP sure. always uses, now is not the time. The mm -hmm. boss is like, the business is in danger of falling apart and we just can't pay you fairly mm -hmm. um, while they're pocketing 20 to 30 billion a year. Uh, so they put up a piece of clip art in their presentation that showed a sad man with his pockets turned out, you know, like something on like a Monopoly <laughs> chance card, you know, like, sure. oh, and um, uh, I believe it was Billy Ray laughed out loud. Um, and that was, you know, th that was not the way thing you know, like, but he couldn't, you know, I don't think he could help it. It was so, sure. it was ridiculous. So, but uh, generally speaking, you know, the negotiations are an incredibly, incredibly formalized process. And then they'll, mm -hmm. when they're on breaks, they might, you know, have more personal conversations. And this is the part I didn't really get to see because, you know, we were in a pandemic and it was just bizarre. Um, but so there are, there are, you know, uh, stories that uh, they've told of like when we were trying to get our first uh, parental leave benefit, which was just, hey, you won't fire us if we have a baby, right? Um, uh, that was Nicole Yorkin telling a very personal story about what she went through. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they they did a little sidebar and Nicole um, uh, told this story to Carol Lombardini and Carol was really sympathetic to it. And then you go back in the negotiation room and nothing's moved an inch mm. you know so it's it, it it's it, the the thing for all our members to really understand about negotiations i gave a speech to this effect at uh one of our meetings uh the only thing that moves these guys is power that's mm. it's, you can make a moral argument and they will think that is just adorable you can talk about how writers are suffering how like people who are writing on you know critically acclaimed hit shows like the handmaid's tale one of those writers was tweeting about like driving lyft after mm -hmm. the room wrapped mm -hmm. like you know that's funny to them genuinely i think that's kind of funny to them uh yes. you know because it's yeah. well i mean these look i picked a job doing something that would drive a lot of people nuts right you and i mm -hmm. can both sit in a room for you know 12 16 hours a day messing around with the way two imaginary people talk to each other and not mm -hmm. go insane um i couldn't do what the labor negotiators for the studios do i couldn't mm -hmm. do it i would not feel good about myself but so it's it's selected for a group of people who that's fun to them you know that's yeah. that's fun to them to make the strongest deal they can on behalf of their client and you know that's uh, i mean i i don't want to get too judgy but you know it takes all kinds i guess to make our world go round but um but it, it's it's really hard to wrap your head around how fundamentally different their perspective on things is and, and how much it is really just what is our power merit yeah. you know and we're in the middle of a display of our power we're you know showing our power by by picketing but we're also and more fundamentally showing our power by upholding our work mm -hmm. they keep talking about like oh we've got stuff for the fall lineup we're fine it's like 
yeah, because we made that stuff for you four to eight quarters ago. Yeah. What's your uh, earnings report going to look like in another four to eight quarters? Mm -hmm. You know, like it's it's just it's a shell game. You know, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we have all these shows. It's like, yeah, I know. You know, it's it's like standing outside a, an auto factory that's been shut down, gesturing to the car lot that you have of all the cars you have to sell. It's like, yeah, I get it. But the factory is still shut down, bro. Yeah. You know, so anyway. Speaking of shows, um, you came up on network and cable. Uh, and one of the things that obviously is being discussed as part of these negotiations are many rooms and streaming and how how it's changed so much from you know, even the time you came up, which was not that long ago, and has been the way people came up through the history of Hollywood. And now that's fundamentally just a different system. So I'd love if you could maybe get into uh, yeah. that I mean, pipeline I, for up and coming writers, how important it is and how that's changed. It's incredibly important. I mean, I, I was mentored and I, I actually came up in animation first. I started mm -hmm. out writing cartoon shows. So it was Dwayne Capizzi, who was my boss. I was an assistant. And Dwayne, uh, in fact, encouraged me to write a spec script for him to read. Uh, it, it maybe he even had to nag me about it a little bit. Um, uh, and, you know, he taught me how to write, um, you know, took me under his wing and, you know, taught me how stories work. Because that's I could write a scene, I could write dialogue, but story mechanics did not come naturally for me. Mm -hmm. So I am living proof that mentorship is really, really important. But working in animation... That's, you know, under the Animation Guild, that's a different union. It's a, it, kids animation right. is generally uh, organized under the Animation Guild. It, it's a different process. Uh, mm -hmm. The highest title that I was able to get was producer, and I had to fight for that and agree not to tell anybody they were giving it to me if memory serves. Right. Um, the normal title of showrunner is story editor. That's right. the highest level that most animation writers get to is just story editor. And then sometimes now there are shows that have a staff, a small staff. But when I was doing Teen Titans, Jackie Chan Adventures, it was all freelance. Mm -hmm. so that still happens be, a lot. Yeah. 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 So I would be getting paid, you know, my fee to story edit the, the script. And then I'd be working with freelancers. And I had wonderful, talented freelancers, you know, uh, people like Rob Hoagie, Amy Wolfram, Adam Beach, and Simon Rassioba, and um, uh, people that I really, really love uh, working with. Um, but still, that's not their full-time job. So mm -hmm. you're kind of on your own uh, in terms of what you maybe feel like you could ask of your freelancers in terms of the turnaround time. You know, you may take something in and then get notes that kind of blow it up. And do you really have time in the schedule to send it back to the writer, wait for them to take it past them? So, uh, you know, I never pulled an all-nighter in high school or college. I was a good student. Mm -hmm. I pulled about an all-nighter a week on Teen mm -hmm. Titans. Um, I mean, I would, I would write till three, four in the morning. I'd be having little hallucinations in the corner of my eyes. And then I'd sleep for three hours. I lived in Santa Barbara at the time. I'd sleep for three hours, get up and drive to the recording session from uh, in LA, in actually yeah. the building where the AMPTP now exists. So some of my fondest memories are in the building where the AMPTP is. That's where we'd made all the Warner Brothers cartoons back then. <laughs> um, but so then going into... Um, prime time, you know, going into room culture, uh, uh, which I didn't get to. Law and Order was very similar to the way I worked in animation. We had a staff, but it was mm -hmm. independent study. You didn't have a writer's room. I wasn't on mm -hmm. a writer's room till in plain sight. And I, I met my first writer's assistant, Joel Garfinkel, who's now a member of the guild. And I looked at her and I'm like, are you writing down what we're saying? And she's like, yeah, that's my <laughs> job. And I'm like, why? 
because I sort of felt like if it was a good idea, you'll remember it. I've now come to really appreciate uh, the quality <laughs> uh, that good writer's room notes bring. But yeah. so it was baffling to me at the time. But uh, through that, through the process of working in rooms over the years, I've been mentored. I've mentored other writers. I, on person of interest, we we were like eight, nine day shoots, big stunts, uh, difficult show to make, you know, mm -hmm. very cinematic. And so uh, one of the things that I would do is sit down and do about a 45 minute talk with writers before their first time covering set and mm -hmm. just explain to them, here's what it is. Here's what your job is. Cause I didn't really have that. I was just, they told me to cover set and I'm like, how? And they're like, cover set. Right. Um, so, uh, that that wasn't on person of interest that was on another show my first time but mm -hmm. um, but so yeah it, 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 being there for each other and training and i really feel like at every level the the thing that's going on this sort of tech mentality hedge fundification of hollywood has led to a situation where we're sort of eating our seed corn you know we're mm. only developing existing ip as corporations so that we're not creating the next generation of IP. If, yeah. if a young George Lucas was to come in with a pitch for Star Wars now, they'd be like, hey, great. Can you make that? Can you do that? But with Flash Gordon. Right. You know, um, uh, so they're not creating new IP, which is very short sighted. Mm -hmm. They're not by not sending us to set they're Yeah, sure. Saving the money on a business class flight in a hotel room. And they're costing themselves all of the stuff that writers catch and are able to improve. Mm -hmm. when we're on set um a, a good writer on set can be a really phenomenal asset um mm -hmm. both being there to answer questions making sure that things are getting done properly you know uh, it's it, you know it's i used to joke that when i was on set i should get a t-shirt that says it's all my fault and then on the back it says and i'm in the way uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it really i i really really believe in sending writers to set i think it saves money i, I think putting writers in in post and giving them the opportunity to see how everything cuts together because it, mm -hmm. it also changes the way you write when you've been on set you know what's expensive you know what's maybe under described or that you need to be more clear about when you've watched how it all cut cuts together in post and then you're on set and you know what pieces you need you know mm -hmm. and you know how to put things on the page so that sort of training that i've got has uh really really uh, i think saved the companies a lot of money um, you know, that was one thing I did on person of interest was I, I worked on our graphics department to make sure that we were shooting as much stuff practically as possible because we were getting killed in VFX. And I have no idea how much money that saved, but I know it was a lot. You mentioned at the top of that, you, talk, you talked a little bit about um, your time, like being a member of TAG and your time working mostly in animation. And I have seen on social media, people in TAG are talking about animation specifically you know, talking about p potentially, you know, WGA, like how TAG is for WGA, they, you know, are hopeful that WGA will support TAG in their negotiations because mm -hmm. TAG writers do have fewer protections, make less money, that kind of thing. Um, how can, I I guess I'm getting to, like, how can we support TAG in the near future to sort of help them the way that they've been helping us? Well, I mean, certainly, I think in the event that if TAG was to go on strike, um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, certainly, you know, I'm not in leadership the guild anymore. So I'm just speaking as a rank and file member. Sure. But I sure as hell wouldn't cross that picket line. 
Mm -hmm. you know, and I'd be somebody that they might look to, to, you know, write animation scripts, but I wouldn't do it, Um, you know, so, and then the the whole issue of writers in tag versus writer in the WGA, that's an incredibly complex issue. It seems like it, it seems way more complicated than, it gets into history, it gets into labor law, yeah. Um, so it's, you know, I, I see the little timer that we got like eight minutes left. So I can <laughs> cover that here. And honestly, I'm not the right person to really get into it. But I, I, all I will say is that it, it's a really, really complicated issue. As a, as a member of both unions, I personally believe that writers should all be in one union. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that um, uh, as a member of TAG, uh, I was part of the 10% of the membership that were writers. The the numbers may have changed, but at the time that was the figure I heard was that 10% of TAG was writers. So when they go to negotiate a contract, are you going to worry about the 10% of your membership? Are you going to try and achieve gains for the other 90%? Mm -hmm. Now that other 90% isn't indivisible. Character designers and colorists have different concerns, storyboard artists and directors and, you know, all of that stuff. So it's not like that's one thing but uh, i i think the artists in tag the you know uh, visual artists are a little bit more unified in their demands and then the writers have a separate set of concerns and you know we see that in, in the writers guild anytime you have a group that's not a major constituency it's hard to win things for them because the studio knows mm-hmm. that well what are you going to do are you going to go on strike for 10 percent of your membership Um, So it's it's an incredibly, incredibly thorny issue. And then, you know, the the thing I will say that every WGA member should know is that the the WGA does have an animation organizing committee. And if you are selling an animation animated product and you'd like it to be covered by the WGA, the time to do that is at point of sale. Uh, If you're going out with an animated pitch and you want that talk to the WGA about it beforehand, because once the show is covered under tag, we're never going to take another member, another union's members. We won't mm-hmm. do that. That's that's not good for unionism. It's not good for solidarity. Um, so that becomes a much more complicated thing. So if you're pitching an animated project and you want to try to get WGA coverage for it, that's a conversation to to have with the guild at that point. Um, doesn't mean there there have been shows that have switched over to WGA, but that's a complicated thing that has to do with what the members on that show. Uh, the writers on that show do. That's not something that the union is, you know, backing. It's uh, it, it's a complicated thing. So yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I would I would love someday in a you know traffic and smog free future to see uh, all writers in the same union because I think we'd be that much stronger for it. And I frankly think the animation guild would be stronger if they were concerned with a, a smaller group of members who's a slightly smaller group of members who's. Uh, uh, membership is more unified in what their needs and concerns are. Now that makes a lot of sense. Um, and something I didn't really, I've never worked in animation. I don't know much about that was very, very informative. It's um, enormous fun, by the way. I'm, I'm sure still, it is. I, I, I someday dream of doing, I want to do a one hour animated drama. I love breaking story with artists in the room. You come out of it with storyboard panels, basically like sketches that they've drawn. It's, uh, it's, it really, really teaches you and reminds you that, what we do is a visual medium, you know, the script driven way that we write television, which is, of course, makes sense. You need it to be script driven, but we frequently solve problems with words on the page um, and animation writing really teaches you to think in images. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I I love that. I still try to write that way. And I, I, I miss that aspect of it. Also, artists are just cool as shit. Like they're, you know, they'll, they'll drive. They they I my head was shaved back then so they used to draw me as a q-tip 
um, uh, like they draw pictures to make fun of each other. Like love working with artists. That's really fun. Uh, we don't have a ton of time left, um, but I do want to ask, you know, as someone who's been in this industry a little while, a lot of my listeners are uh, pre-WGA or up-and-coming writers. Um, so what is maybe advice you have for for upcoming writers or some like the biggest lesson you've learned in your in your career so far? I would say, well, first of all, with regards to the strike, um, when I was on strike in 2007, a guy in my group of location picketers had been in the guild three weeks. And I, I think it's safe to say he was scared. Uh, yeah. He now runs 911 Lone Star. Um, mm -hmm. A guy that was our writer's assistant on Magnum PI this past season had been in the guild a week when we went on strike. And I have mm -hmm. every confidence that he's got a great career ahead of him. So don't let the strike scare you. This is a big thing. It's going to change your life for a little while, but in the end, it's going to make your life better when we win. Um, as far as starting a career and getting getting that first job, just, uh, I, I think the big thing, every writer that I've ever known who's been successful has kind of done three or four things just continuously. Write stuff, actually finish it, show it to people, mm -hmm. uh, listen to what they say, uh, but distinguish between the stuff that helps you do what you were trying to do and the stuff that would just make it how they would have written it. That's mm -hmm. a really tricky thing early it out, is. but listen to what people say and then rewrite. And if you keep doing those things, uh, I, I think that's the way there, you know, mm -hmm. I've, uh, the other advice I've given, you know, uh, or people who are starting their careers is, uh, I wouldn't worry too much about getting an agent or a manager. If you have somebody offering and you like them, that's great, but just try to get work. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, cause once you have work, uh, the agent and manager come naturally and, and they can really help. And if you look, if you're in a situation where there's somebody who's read you and wants to rep you, do it, you know, yeah. in terms of where you, cause you know, when you're not making your living this way, you're having to decide where to spend your energy, you know, mm -hmm. like you're going to, I remember working a day job. I did my first seven episodes of animation writing after my, I was the writer, I, I was the executive assistant and script coordinator on the big guy in Rusty the Boy Robot. And then I was writing scripts for it between 8 p.m. and two in the morning. Um, you know, so you really do have to decide where you focus your energy. So I, I, I would focus my energy on writing excellent shit. And then one last piece of advice, when you're thinking about writing specs, and this goes even now when I'm, you know, if I was gonna write a spec, I'd be thinking about this. Look at the other specs you have and think about what you know about yourself as a writer that your specs don't yet show. Hmm. Um, so like during the last strike in 2007, um, I was writing on Law and Order, um, but I loved writing science fiction. That's what I'd basically done in animation. And mm -hmm. so I, I wanted to, you know, show people that I could write that. So I wrote, you know, something that's now sort of a whole common genre, but at the time there weren't many things like this. I wrote a, you know, a supernatural procedural, um, pilot and that, opened a door that got me uh, a job that led to the development job that created the script that got me on person of interest, which was a great job for me. I was there for four years. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, always be, write the stories that interest you, but make sure that you're showing the various facets of what you can do. 
we have about a minute left. So before I get into the our final round of questions, which, you know, get to know you even better on a, a deeper level, get to know your soul. Uh, where can people follow you? Is there anything you want to plug or are allowed to fuck right now? Um, I'm, if I'm anywhere, I'm Slack to the future there with the numeral two. Um, so I'm Slack to the future on Spoutable. Uh, I am on Twitter. Um, God help us all. Um, I, I'm on Mastodon somewhere. Uh, and um I think Hive is gone. I don't know. I think Hive's gone. But yeah, and um, and I'm on the WGA website and on IMDb. If you want to look at my credits, that's uh, directories.wga.org. You can look up any writer in the guild and actually see who, who they've worked with before, which is a useful thing. So, that is cool. Yeah. Uh, David, what do you think happens after we die? Um, I think that, oh, wait, no, somebody told this to me the other day on the picket line. So the answer is that the first thing you see is this really bright white light. And then as soon as that clears, you get this. Your meeting has ended. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to 39 Minute Conversations, hosted and produced by Brian T. Arnold. Music by Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tune in for new episodes and don't forget to rate and review. If you didn't like what you heard, Please don't do any of that. That's okay, too. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and be well.